Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. Time has come. We've reached the final episode of season two. I want to thank you all so much for listening every week. I see your likes and retweets, and I just really appreciate all of your love and support. And I hope you've enjoyed learning about some of your favorite screwball films and figures. If you listened to last week's episode, you may have guessed this week's topic. I'm discussing The Thin Man, William Powell, and Myrna Loy with author and journalist Rob Kozlowski. Rob is the author of Becoming Nick and Nora, The Thin Man, and the films of William Powell and Myrna Loy, which explores each star's career and their film collaborations. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Rob. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So can you introduce yourself to my listeners? How did you first discover classical Hollywood generally, and what inspired you to write Becoming Nick and Nora? Uh, Well, I... um grew up in uh, the Chicago area. And when, you know, my mom and dad introduced me to classic films, just as, you know, a lot of people our age, uh, you know, their parents introduced them to classic films. I, uh, we used to watch uh, in Chicago on Sunday afternoons, there was a show on WGN called Family Classics. And that's when they would show, you know, the adventures of Robin Hood and the Maltese Falcon, and you know, Marx Brothers movies. And I just, grew really fascinated with them at the really at a really early age when I was about nine years old I checked out the great movie comedians uh at the library it's the book by Leonard Moulton that I think he wrote in 1980 and I think I checked that out I don't know like 20 times um and what was really interesting at the time is that we couldn't you, you couldn't really see a lot of these movies like mm-hmm. I was really fascinated by Laurel and Hardy they were not on my on tv at NRS and mm-hmm. my mom insists they were better than the three stooges <laughs> And, uh, you know, so I kind of got really fascinated by especially silent films and really early talkies because they were not available, really, uh, for the most part. So, you know, I just got really, really interested. You know, that that interest just grew. I got more books. I I majored in film and quickly realized that I had no desire to move to L.A. Um, And, uh, you know, then just generally pursued sort of an interest in film history. I've always wanted to write a, a movie book. Um, in the late 90s, when I was about 25 years old, I decided I wanted to write a Douglas Fairbanks book. Mm. Um, but, you know, life happens. And, uh, you know, I ended up writing a couple of books about theater and got a job at the newspaper. And I was very heavily involved in the theater world here in the Chicago area. But that ended around 2017, and I realized, you know, I haven't written that movie book that I've always wanted to write. So uh, Becoming Nick and Nora was just, it it came about as a realization that there really hadn't been a book about them both. Um, There were a couple of William Powell biographies written, one in the 80s that had like no sources cited, Uh, and then uh, one in 2006 uh, published by McFarland Press, so you know that like 10 people bought it. So, and Myrna Loy, of course, 
you know, and also William Powell, you know, his his son died in the 60s. And there's not a lot known about him, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a private person. He's not seen as sort of a Greta Garbo type, but he kind of was. Mm -hmm. And then uh, kind of became that way. And then uh, Myrtle Loy wrote an autobiography, and there was a very good biography written about her, you know, 12, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I felt that like really needed to be a book about them and, and to, together. And I, what I realized is that it was really interesting to me, the fact that they both started out as villains. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, they were 13 years apart in age, but they both started out as bad guys. Um, so I just thought that that and the fact is, is that their ascent to their sort of known personalities, it was a very circuitous path to you know, from villain to screwball comedy mm-hmm. uh, superstar. So I just found that really interesting that, that uh, you know, audiences that first got to know them would have no idea what they would wind up be doing. You know, because some stars like like Gary Cooper, for example, you know, Gary Cooper was Gary Cooper from day one. Yeah. <laughs> there, was, there was no evolution of his screen persona. Yeah. Um, but these two, you know, they had that sort of parallel trajectory. And I just thought that that made for an interesting story. It definitely is. And it's interesting that you write about them in tandem, because as you said, both of them had established careers before The Thin Man. And of course, The Thin Man was not their first screen pairing. They worked previously in Manhattan melodrama. Um, But how did that screen iconicity in The Thin Man really impact their subsequent careers? Well, enormously. Um, You know, William Powell, you know, both of them, even when they started to go away from sort of the villain roles in the early 30s, both primarily dramatic actors. Powell really broke through with the Philo Vance mysteries uh, at Paramount. That was really when he became a leading man, uh, you know, and very uh, fortuitously right at the beginning of the talking era. So he, you know, there was no sort of preconceived notion of William Powell as a leading man. Mm -hmm. So he was able to sort of forge his own identity. I think, you know, the types of silent film villains that he played didn't really translate well into, into sound films, you know, mm. the sort of, you know, mustachioed, swarthy uh, villain in swashbucklers and things like that. Yeah. So that was very fortuitous. But the thing was, is those films were really dramatic. I mean, his, you know, he made no comedies of Paramount, you know, 1929, 1930, 1931, dead serious. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes played a, uh, an immoral man who finds redemption. So that was a way to sort of transition him smoothly from villain to hero you know because he he's sort of like he's literally playing characters who used to be villains and become heroes um and meanwhile Myrna Loy gravitated towards sort of the part you know she played sort of supporting roles oftentimes as the other woman or sort of a vain party girl and really when they were cast in the thin man you know it totally changed the public's perception of them because neither, you know, if you remember in The Thin Man, when Myrna Loy is pulled by Asta into the bar, you know, that's when we first see her and Myrna Loy does a pratfall. Mm-hmm. That's the first pratfall of her entire career. She had made dozens of films to that point. But comedy, really, you know, she she did a little bit of comedy. I mean, she played, she was in, um, she played the... Uh, villain in the uh, Will Rogers version of a Connecticut Yankee. So she kind of lampoons her own vamp persona a little bit. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like out and out comedy, she had didn't really do anything. And Powell also, you know, he made one picture at Warner's called High Pressure, 
where he sort of played a fast-talking con man. But his time at Warner's was very eclectic. Uh, he did, you know, Jewel Robbery is a wonderful comedy with him and yes. Kay Francis. But it, again, his role in that is very sophisticated. It's very, very different from the screwball roles he'd play at MGM. So yeah. really, um, it completely transformed their perception to the public. Um, you know, and then you see, you know, as they would be paired in 13 more films after The Thin Man, you know, they transformed. And so The Thin Man, you know, at, you know, it helped that it was an enormous hit, you know, all sorts of Oscar nominations. Yeah. Um, but it really, it really transformed them. Definitely. And you bring up, you brought up um, the first scene in the hotel bar where Myrna Lois, or Nora is being pulled by Asta and you discuss it quite um, extensively in your book and how it's sort of this perfect encapsulation of the Charles's marriage. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that scene's significance to the film and what it reveals about Nick and Nora's relationship sort of more broadly? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, we see in the beginning of the film, we have our mystery established and we have Nick established as the gentleman drinker. And once we get Nora and Nick in there, we, you know, the, the screenwriters, uh, Francis Hackett and Albert Goodrich really do a wonderful job of sort of establishing their repartee. Mm. The fact that, that they're constantly teasing each other um, and not in a remotely cruel way. You know, we see all sorts of married couples, you know, portrayed as the Bickersons in, <laughs> uh, in pictures and in a lot of sort of the thin man knockoffs that would emerge in the late 30s. You know, it really establishes sort of this very playful teasing. And yeah. what's really interesting, what I find really interesting about the scene is that you know, when they're sitting at the table in the famous moment when he says he's had, you know, I think five or six martinis. And so she directs the waiter to line up five martinis so she can catch up with him. Mm -hmm. um, W.S. Van Dyke, Woody Van Dyke was renowned for being a fast, efficient director who would shoot things really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And naturally, you're going to you're, you're not going to do a ton of setups for lighting and things like that when you have to shoot something in two or three weeks. So you yeah. have a lot of long shots in those days. And so. The fact is, is that when they're sitting at that table, it's a really long, I think it's like a, the shot itself is a little less than a minute long. Mm -hmm. By sustaining the two of them together in the frame, their profiles gazing at each other that entire time. Just that, you know, it's sort of an accidental miracle in a lot of ways, because just the fact that that shot is sustained for so long really establishes them as a unit yeah. together. We're not cutting back and forth between them. We're seeing them together, at all, you know, as, as much as we possibly can. So in a way, that's a happy accident because of the speed of the production schedule. But it works perfectly. And, and you know, there's so much about that movie that's a happy accident. So, you know, I think that's a big one is that, you know, we're establishing that they're, to, you know, that they're together, that um, and that they just like each other. You know, there's, a, yeah. there's moments, you know, actually when you look at them in that table scene, when he's, you know, he just sort of rests his his chin on his hand. What was it? Uh, how's your father's side? Or what was it? I forgot what this line is. But, you know, it's wonderful little moments where we see that sustained uh, interaction between the both of them. And it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous scene. And it's the perfect way to set it up. It is. You can see how much they love each other and how they're like totally in sync with one another. And I think that sort of speaks to the point that Nick is not a typical pulp detective. He enjoys living off his wife's money. He has this joie de vivre attitude. And as you said, he's like hopelessly in love with Nora. He absolutely adores her. And you can see that from that first scene. And what mm -hmm. do you think distinguishes Nick from other popular pulp detectives of that era? And what did William Powell specifically bring to the role? Well, what's interesting, of course, is that Powell was cast as Nick 
because of his experience playing Philo Vance. Uh, mm-hmm. If you see the first three Philo Vance films from Paramount, forgive me, anyone who's listening who likes these movies. <laughs> They're not good. They're not good. But he's particularly, he, but the fourth one, which Michael Curtiz, uh did at Warner Brothers, the Kendall murder case, gets a little closer to wh- who Nick ends up being. What's really interesting about Philo Vance is in the original books by S.S. Van Dyne, he is an absolute weasel. Um, he makes Sherlock Holmes seem social by comparison. He's just the most unlikable detective. So they obviously had to tone that down quite a bit for the movies. But, you know, what's funny about the fact that, you know, if you see, if you go on YouTube, you can actually see the trailer for The Thin Man. William Powell plays Philo Vance talking to William Powell playing Nick Charles. Um, so it's clear that the Philo Vance connection was something that, and the M- MGM, Hunt Stromberg, the producer, and all the other folks that MGM realized this was a connection, you know, because the, the Philo Vance movies were pretty successful and he was identified with that character. So mm-hmm. that trailer where he plays both roles is a wonderful way of sort of Powell, you know, passing the hat to himself, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what Powell brings to the role really is, A, he's a really, uh, he had, you know, up to this point, he had experienced primarily as a dramatic actor. And there are moments in The Thin Man that are dramatic where we see where he gets scared you know, the, the scene where he sort of punches her out to get her out of the way of the bullet in the, mm. in the bedroom. In the yeah. scene. You know, he, Powell has a wonderful, and I think this is where imitators have, you know, really faltered, is because Nick really does love her. Yeah. I mean, he loves her and really cares about her a lot. And mm-hmm. he has this sort of surface devil-may-care sort of attitude, but he really actually does care a lot. But, yeah. you know, it's so much of his sort of surface personality that he projects is just him having fun because mm-hmm. he just loves life and he loves living his life with Nora. But, you know, woe be to anyone who gets, you know, who crosses her path, yeah. and, you know, and hurts her because he will, he will, you know, he will bring out that can of whoop ass um, <laughs> if you need to use some very antiquated slang. But um, yeah, so I think what Powell brings is that sort of uh, gravity that he was more than capable, you know, he showed audiences for years as both a villain and a hero, mm-hmm. and, but able to sort of add that layer of humor and charm. I don't know how, I couldn't imagine there being another Nick Charles, because he just, he's yeah. so perfect for the role. It's almost to the point where like they're Nick Charles and William Powell are like the one and the same, right? It's like he's totally become that character and vice versa. Absolutely. And he, uh, you know, he, he captures everything that we ever wanted to know. And that's why I, I just don't think it'll ever be repeated. You know, I yeah. think there was a thin remake with Johnny Depp in pre-production <laughs> like 15 years ago. And thank oh, God, God that fell up. No, that, that's uh, sacrilegious. I hope, I hope that never comes to fruition. Likewise, Nora is independent. She's sharp as a tack. And she's also stubborn, but also curious. She wants to be included in Nick's sleuthing and she's perpetually amused by this by the criminal characters that he comes mm-hmm. across because she's not from that world. She is a, a rich, I guess the debutante for lack of a better word. And I guess same question, uh, what does Myrna Loy bring to the Nora Charles role? I think, and this is the reason that they made such a great screen pair because I feel like she brings exactly the same thing that William Hell does to Nick. There's that one wonderful moment, that little sentimental moment where he's going to go take Asta over to Winant's laboratory and she makes him stop and kiss her. And she says, I'm just used to you. That's all. And, uh, you know, she tries to sort of she also tries to pretend to, you know, not care and all that sort of stuff. But she she loves um, Mm -hmm. she loves 
Nick equally. It, it, so it, the dynamic between them is extraordinary. And I think she's the bigger surprise in a lot of ways. If you look at, you know, her career up to the point of The Thin Man, it was only a couple of films before The Thin Man that she really was able to kind of be herself. Mm-hmm. And really it was what, you know, Woody Van Dyke and Hans Stromberg, they worked with her uh in the film, two films before the film, and just Penthouse with Warner Baxter, where she finally was able to like have that sophisticated and yet playful sort of personality, mm-hmm. where she just, you know, I, I don't get the feeling that that Myrna Loya's Nora is a frustrated debutante. You know, like sometimes if you play it, if you play it too much, like she's frustrated with her role as a debutante, then mm-hmm. it seems like there's an element of dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Myrna as Laura does not come across as someone who is dissatisfied with being a wealthy woman. She loves it. Yeah. Uh, but she's so very titillated by sort of the underworld and very mm-hmm. amused, maybe not even titillated, but just, you know, perpetually amused by it. She just, yeah. she loves to sort of look through the window at this, you know, this very peculiar criminal world. And she's just fascinated by it. And she wants to sort of explore it. And Nick, who doesn't want to be in that world anymore anyway yeah. um and he's getting pulled back he doesn't want her to get pulled in but she's too fascinated by it and so that dynamic really works because it and, and again it's really really tough to to pull this off because you know basically nick doesn't want to be a detective anymore but he cares too damn much about people <laughs> yeah so he's finally sort of pulled back in but you can't be too frustrated because then what's the motivation for him going ahead and doing it yeah. you know so it's uh, it's a really fine balance between sort of that really caring and not you know pretend the, the caring and not and pretending not to care mm-hmm. um, is is really really tough and that's where the screenwriters Goodrich and Hackett just just absolutely hit it perfectly. And what I love about it is, um, especially I think in the original Thin Man, it's like they seem like they're having a party throughout life. It's like. I mean, the scene where they have like all the different underworld characters over for like Christmas drinks. And um, it's just like, you know, and then, of course, in the next film, they arrive home and there's a party going on at their house. Right. So it's like always a bit of fun and their detective works peppered in through that. Yeah. And I think that, you know, especially it's it's the uh, the parties also sort of established that, you know, Nick and Nora are beloved. You know, what what I kind of find interesting is that choice in screenplays when they remind us that everyone loves these characters. Mm-hmm. I think I think my favorite example of that is Mary Mae West's first starring role and she done him wrong. I think it's like fifteen minutes uh, of the film is like everyone talking about how amazing she is. <laughs> <laughs> and then she finally shows up and you have no choice but to think this woman is amazing. You love um, her. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, they're just building up this anticipation. But, you know, yeah. I think that all these parties, especially especially the New Year's Eve one in uh, After the Thin Man, which I love, mm-hmm. is they show up, they're allegedly tired um, <laughs> after the first movie, and there's the party there, and they just go ahead, you know, they, you know, you could make the mistake as a screenwriter of being like, hey, we're going to kick everybody out. No, they just sort of go with the flow. This, yeah. is, all, this is our life, and we love it. <laughs> and this is just what we have to do. We just have to party all the time. And, uh, and they accept it and embrace it, you know. And again, it's sort of that that sort of balance between, you know, they're pretending that they're tired of it, 
but they're not, they're not really. They love it. Yeah, they love every minute of it. And to your point, yeah, it, it's interesting that it does speak to the fact that they are so beloved. Like, well, every gangster criminal that you come across, they're always like, oh, no hard feelings. You sent me to jail, but I don't hold it against you kind of thing. It's like. Yeah, it's a glorious fantasy. Yeah, there's never going to be, you know, no one's going to resent Nick for doing his job. That was his yeah. job. <laughs> um, obviously, Nick and Nora Charles helped establish Powell and Loy's screen iconicity, but what was their relationship like off the screen? Well, they were very, very close. The funny thing is, is that, you know, you mentioned sort of everyone thinks of William Powell as Nick Charles. Audiences thought they were married in real life. They were not. They were never romantically involved. Powell really didn't do any interviews after around like the early 30s. So we have Myrna Loy's reflections to depend mm-hmm. on. You know, she basically said that it was the best idea in the world for us not to get involved. But we're too much alike, which, you know, is, is exactly what we see on screen. So they remained close for many years. You know, obviously, you know, when Powell retired to uh, Palm Springs and Myrna Loy got involved in politics a lot, they didn't see each other as much. But, you know, there's a wonderful photos, uh, you know, Polaroid photos of Myrna mm-hmm. sitting uh, William Powell and his wife Diana in the 70s. Yeah. I think Powell's around 80 at this point out of movies for like 17 years. And, and, and Myrna was... Uh, mostly doing TV and guest spots in Columbo, you know, Columbo and things like that. And you just see that they just, they just adored each other. And, um, you know, I think that that positive working relationship as someone who was involved in theater and acting and putting together ensembles and things like that, when you have chemistry like that, you don't let that person go. Yeah. Ever. You know, you just, you, you realize as the years go on, you, there's, you, you're not going to meet that many people with whom you make that kind that level of connection. So it was just Myrna expressed her deep affection for Powell for the rest mm-hmm. of her life. And they seem, I know Powell, as you said, he was a bit um, reticent to actually give interviews, but they both seem very, you know, fiercely protective of one another. They, they you know, wanted the best for one another. And those Polaroids that you mentioned, they are so indicative, I think, of that bond that they had with each other. They're, you know, you can see the connection and sort of loyalty that they have. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that comes through in their movies, you know, even the ones where, you know, it's it's really interesting the the sort of the, you know how their dynamic changes, but you know inevitably remains the same because you know you know that they're going to wind up together. Yeah, there's not a lot of tension necessarily because you know you as the audience know that they're going to be together. I mean, there are only a handful of classical Hollywood movies, I think, that are as universally beloved as The Thin Man. And I think the name alone, along with Nick and Nora Charles, are almost like shorthands for this certain sophisticated sensibility and certain style of comedies. And so I'd ask you, what does Nick and Nora represent to you? Oh, gosh. Um, Marriage doesn't have to be the end. You know, you're talking about these screwball comedies where, you know, you have you know, the, the, when they get married, that's the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> has not been pulled off very often over the ensuing decades is the fact yeah. that I think two marriage, what, one marriage is not the end and two, everything is about character. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's, you know, if you are able to have compelling characters that the audience wants to watch, they will watch those characters do just about anything. You know, the movie doesn't even have to be that great. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it, if you have that sort of dynamic and you're able to, you know, these characters, you want them to succeed. You want to spend time with them. And I think a lot of a lot of writers today don't realize that so much um, that it really is all about character. And it's really all about getting the audience invested in those characters and yeah. their relationship 
and seeing whatever, you know, and seeing them succeed at what they're trying to do uh, on the very basic level. And on sort of the screwball side is the fact that, you know, there are ways to make a, any kind of romantic relationship on screen work. You know, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to dislike each other at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so it's really amazing in, in, in how, how much it works really because yeah. because how much it works because so many of the attempts to imitate it have all characters that, that we want to we want to see yeah i mean i think the thin man is such a perfect example of hollywood landing on a winning formula and trying so hard to exploit it and try to replicate it to varying degrees of success and you mentioned um there's always a woman um obviously the thin man inspired uh, several more installments, but there's also this whole subgenre of late 30s, early 40s whodunit comedies that feature those like husband and wife characters. There's, you know, Star at Midnight, Fast Company, to varying degrees of success. I think some work better than others, but why do you think that Nick and Nora formula works so well? Well, I think it's because I think with any sort of detective genre, the thing that matters is the detective, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously. We want, you know, I think the, the Thin Man movies that don't work as well as others, I think, make the actual mystery the focus mm. of the story. And I think that, I mean, ultimately, um, you want to be, you want to follow the mystery, and you want to follow these other characters. And I, you know, we have you know, the, the formula of, I mean, the thing that worked so well for the Thin Man movie, uh, which I think is underappreciated, is that in the novel. Uh, we start with, uh, we never meet Claude Winant. We never mm -hmm. meet the Thin Man. Mm -hmm. And so open with Nick in the bar. So what Goodrich and Hackett did by sort of establishing the character of Claude Winant before he disappears, by making him partially an unlikable character, he's obviously, a lot of people don't like him. He's not a bad guy because he obviously loves his daughter. Yeah. You know, we establish he loves his daughter. He's not a bad person. You know, he's not like, one of those murder victims that cheats and, you know, cheats everybody he meets. Uh, we establish all those characters. So we, we have sort of a nice foundation to work up. So we have everything sort of out of the way. We don't have to worry about introducing anybody else before we meet Nick and Nora. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's a wonderful way to do it because the mystery isn't, you know, and, and some critics, when they write about the thin man, they say, you know, that the mystery doesn't matter. The mystery does matter. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have it. You know, the fact is, is that, we have it structures it so that it's almost like the murder mystery in there and Nick and Nora's relationship are almost separate. They're separate yeah. at the beginning, and then they start to sort of integrate those in a little bit. So mm -hmm. I think that you know if you look at, I'd be interested actually to look at the images. I haven't seen Fast Company, but I think that one of the things that might be a problem with some of the imitators is they jump right into the relationship right away before sort of yeah. setting up the mystery. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that that really worked well for the Thin Man. Now, they didn't have to do that for after the Thin Man because we already knew them. Yeah. And so we didn't have to sort of establish that mystery and uh, just, you know, right at the beginning. But for the first movie, they really had to sort of establish that mystery first. So mm -hmm. I think that's how that it's one of the reasons the formula works is because we have everybody set up before Nick and Nora. And then we see them sort of as the they're sort of plucked into this world that. Yeah, good rich and get established to begin with. And of course, it makes a difference because you know um, Nick is you know he knows the wine, and so there is that personal connection there. So it's not just like these random right, know, right. random um, uh, clients that show up and you have to take on this case, right? There is that 
connection. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. I think that, you know, if you look at you know, Remain in the Dashiell Hammett world, you know, the Maltese Falcon, you know, we start with Sam Spade or Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor comes in and he's never seen her before. But yeah, yeah. you're right. Having that relationship with at least one member of the mystery really helps. And I think mm -hmm. that's a huge part of, um, you know, what makes the, the Thin Man and after the Thin Man work is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of exposition and also that Nick and Nora are invested in the mystery. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and that so even though Nick is like pretending not to care, we establish immediately also that he, you know, knew Maureen O'Sullivan's character. She that, that he's known Maureen O'Sullivan since she was a little girl. So yeah. we have established that relationship too. So that gives us something a, a, a an anchor for him to hold on to. You know that he's eventually going to try to solve this mystery to help her. You know, and certainly in After the Thin Man, you know, he's going to help in order to help. Uh, Alyssa Lundy's character in After the Thin Man with the horrible husband, Robert, you know, that mm -hmm. even, you know, Robert, you know, in After the Thin Man, Robert is just scum of the earth. You know, he <laughs> no one likes him. He's horrible. But, you know, the fact is, is that for whatever reason, she's upset. And so, you know, Nick's going to help out. So, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. I think that, you know, that, that sort of establishing that uh, prior connection also helps. And it gets rid of unnecessary exposition because that's the thing that kills kills comedy right is mm -hmm. that you know <laughs> let's explain to you everything that's going on so exactly, the, you know quicker yeah. you get that stuff out of the way and that's the, those are the best screwball comedies right i mean mm -hmm. um katherine hepburn and bringing a baby we don't know anything about her background except that her aunt mrs carlton random that's all we know i mean we don't know where else and it doesn't matter right yeah um so if you count the senator was indiscreet in which myrna Loy had a very small cameo she and powell made 14 films together and i think my favorite non-thin man film is the screwball comedy love crazy from 1941 in which they play this married couple on the verge of divorce so I'll ask you, besides The Thin Man, which I, I don't know if that's your favorite or not, but what is your favorite film of theirs and why? Probably I Love You Again. Mm. Um, I, I, I Love You Again is one of those, you know, it, it's really interesting to look at their non, you know, basically Double Wedding, I Love You Again and Love Crazy are sort of the major comedies they made outside. You know, they, mm. they were at Great Ziegfeld together and, you know, Evelyn Prentice, which is not a comedy. What's really interesting about those three is how to work how to give them that same, oh, and also Libel Lady, Libel Lady's yes. a masterpiece. You know, where we have that sort of traditional dislike in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And Love Crazy is interesting because of the fact, you know, I will say that I have a problem with Love Crazy because I don't, I don't buy that Myrna Loy distrusts him that much. <laughs> uh, but I will say that um, what's really interesting about I Love You Again is sort of playing that dislike on the ear that they're married and she does she wants to divorce him. Yeah. The plot of I Love You Again is abs absurd. It doesn't <laughs> stand up for like a second. Uh, I just love the idea of someone who, you know, he basically plays this con man who ha uh, got a blow to the head, had amnesia, ended up getting a new personality, and now he's like running this business nine years later. <laughs> he's so like, like this curmudgeon, yeah. <laughs> like, how would this happen? <laughs> like, so he, had, he had no memory, but now he said, why, how did he wind up with this identity? Anyway, so it doesn't, you know, it, it, it does not stand up to any examination at all. But what works so much about it is, you know, it really kind of plays with their relationship and their dynamic because of the fact that he has to sort of reconvince her that he's such, that he's, he's, he tries to sort of re-win her. Mm -hmm. And you see that my favorite, maybe my favorite scene in their entire partnership together is when he's, 
you see her and he does that he's like cooing in her ear so you hear her just burst out crying just a marvelous marvelous scene of acting because you see that like inside you know she is trying so hard to resist this mm-hmm. she knows this guy's a schmuck um yeah she can't she's she's in love with him again and mm-hmm. that that is such a wonderful moment and i think that makes the film for me and you know i think that i could probably say it's a tie with libel lady but libel lady is such a different movie and such you know it's this also doesn't hold up to any uh examination but that's such a different kind of movie because it's that sort of four-way yeah you know what was a love quadrangle <laughs> uh, but uh I, I love you again it's probably my favorite just because they do such a wonderful job of this absurd plot and you just become invested in it anyway absolutely and it plays with that screen couple iconicity in such a unique way and it's i i agree with you it's a a great example of blending i guess different performance styles it's not just like this straight comedy there are these really understated Mm -hmm. moments that you're able to see in both of their performances final question before i let you go why do you think that th- why has the thin man endured for as long as it has and what do you think is its greatest legacy oh gosh um i think it's endured i mean when you really think about it and i i do this with my wife whenever we watch an old movie because i oftentimes will introduce <laughs> it's terrible i'll introduce a movie by like saying everyone in this movie is dead <laughs> and um it's extraordinary when you think about the fact that people still enjoy the thin man this movie was made 89 years ago uh, you know, my, you know, I'm in my fifties. My uncle, my aunt Marie is 89 years old. She was like born the same month the movie came out. Um, so she doesn't remember it. Uh, it's from a completely different world. So if you think about how much has changed in those 89 years in terms of gender roles and, and all that sort of stuff, it's a miracle that it holds up. I think it's just because of these characters, because they love each other and they enjoy each other i don't know of another married couple in movies that really holds up to it and you know because of the fact that sure in you know to some level you know he's obviously the their gender roles are you know out outdated you could say because of the fact that he's the he's the guy you know he's the detective and she's the one chasing him and all that sort of stuff but there's never a moment especially in the first two films where either of them shows a lack of respect or mm. affection. Every single line is delivered with love and respect, even when they're supposedly different. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just fabulously written. I mean, you think about the, the to me, the big miracle of the movie, everyone, you know, kind of cites Woody Van Dyke shooting the movie in like 18 days. Mm-hmm. But what's more extraordinary is that the book came out in January yeah. Uh, the rights were bought at the end of January and the movie was out at the beginning of June. So That's you had... turnaround, yeah. <laughs> you just think about like the screenplay was written. And not only that, there was a delay because they were cast in Manhattan Melodrama after they were cast as Nick and Nora. And they shot Selznick, David O. Selznick, the producer of Manhattan Melodrama, wanted them for that movie. And so they delayed the shooting of The Thin Man to fit in Manhattan Melodrama. So january to june and there was a delay <laughs> it's just incredible it's just everything works everything in the movie works it's just it's it's and you can see that 89 years later you know i i the criticism i hate most of old movies is you know a movie is dated 
which mm. can be, um, you know, well, of course it is yeah. from that date. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every it's a flimsy critique. I mean, it, uh, they're a product of their time, but that, so what? Right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Barbie's dated now. That came out in July. Exactly. Uh, there's just, it's true. I mean, there's nothing false about it. You yeah. know, it's, it's, I think that's it. And I think because there's a level of self-awareness, mm-hmm. you know, that I think comes across as sort of modern is that idea of like, we know we're in a murder mystery mm-hmm. in a way, not so self-consciously, you know, there's so many like meta things now in TV and movies, but it's more sort of like, we're aware we're in a murder mystery and we're playing along. Yeah. And I think that, you know, along with the fact that the, their relationship is timeless, I think that makes it a little bit more sophisticated than, you know, some of the other you know, uh, detective movies of the day. Yeah, there are a lot of imitators, but there's only one thin man. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Rob, for joining me. I so appreciate hearing your insight and um, speaking with you. So thank you. Absolutely. And thanks for uh, uh, inviting me. And I really appreciate it. For the last time this season, that concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and season three, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again soon. Bye! <laughs>